we are on week number three of a series that we are doing here at Ignite called The Vow. And, and these are, it's really, it's about how, uh, how marriages, but really about how relationships work best. We're kind of going through and talking about some of the different uh, things, ways that we can uh, really not just survive in marriage, but we can thrive in our relationships. And so we've been, we've been talking about, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about communication next week. We've talk, been talking about stuff about like choosing wisely. We talked about the first week, right? We said because uh, you can't unwon what God has won. And so we said, therefore, it makes a big difference about how you choose. You want to do a good job of choosing. Last week, Paul talked about differences, right? And, and between men, women, whatever, and, and often stuff that shows up um, in relationship and stuff we have conflict on and learning how to kind of work through that. Uh, the last week of the series, we're going to be talking about how to affair-proof your marriage. We've got all kinds of stuff uh, that we're going to be talking about. Today, I wanted to zero in on conflict in marriage and, again, conflict really in all relationships uh, because Conflict is sort of a universal deal, isn't it? Conflict happens to us all. It reminds me of a story uh, I heard one time about a woman that went into a post office. This was years ago. And, uh, and she said, man, she's like, I'm getting married soon, and I want to look for the perfect stamp to go on my wedding invitation. And so they took out you know, all the different stamps, kind of laid them out in front of her, and she kind of went through and carefully uh, looked at each one. And finally, she happily announced, she said, I found the perfect stamp. She chose the John Paul Jones commemorative stamp. Pull it up. That says, I have not yet begun to fight. <laughs> and I, thought that was, I thought that was great. But conflict is one of those deals that's universal. It's universal in marriage. It's universal really in any kind of close, honest, loving relationship or friendship, anything of the sort. Conflict is a part of life. It happens to everybody. You don't always hear about it. We don't always talk about it. Sometimes we like to pretend that it doesn't exist, but it does. And so today we want to talk about uh, what that looks like and how it can be a normal and even a healthy part of life in relationships. I was thinking about it this week and thought, you know what? Even Jesus experienced conflict. You ever think about that? Jesus experienced conflict with those around him. You think of his interactions with, with a group known as the Pharisees. And Pharisees are, what are they? Religious leaders, right? He had conflict with the religious leaders of his day. A lot, I might add. They butt, butt heads quite a bit. Uh, you go on and talk, you know, you look at his relationships with his disciples. Did he ever have conflict there? Two of his disciples, they nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. You think there could be any potential for conflict there? The Sons of Thunder. Absolutely. He went, he went head-to-head with them at different times. At one point, these guys wanted to call down fire from heaven and burn people up. And Jesus had some words to say with them about those kinds of things. Even Peter, who in many ways was Jesus' sort of protege, uh, maybe one of his closest friends, yet there were times where Jesus was knee-deep in conflict with Peter. Like I said, conflict is a universal deal. Even Jesus had conflict, so it's sort of unrealistic for us to think, I'm going to have a relationship and there will be no conflict whatsoever, right? I mean, that's just sort of not a, not a realistic kind of thing because conflict is universal. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's how we respond to conflict that makes all the difference, right? So there's at least five different ways that I can come up with of how we typically handle conflict, uh, and I, w- I want to run through them really quickly, and I want you to kind of be self-identifying as we go through, like, which one of these am I? How do I feel about conflict? How do I typically approach conflict? And let me just kind of run through them real quick. The first one is my way, right? My way. And and what what I mean by that is basically you fight until you win. When there's conflict, it's fine, but you're going to be right. You're going to destroy the person uh, on the other side of the argument from you. So you get into a disagreement, a conflict of some some sort, and you kind of move into attack mode (laughs) because you want to win. Anybody like to win? 
Okay, you're afraid to say it, right? But yeah, I like to win. No, yeah, absolutely. Anybody like to win? Sometimes we do this in relationship, don't we? And we, we, start, we start powering up and, you know, something gets said about us or to us and then we power up a little bit more, right? We kind of bring it. Oh, yeah, well, what is about you, right, kind of thing? And then it kind of goes back and forth and it elevates and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I have to say, this approach to conflict, can it be destructive, dare I say? <gasps> yeah, I mean... Yeah, I speak from experience, right, when I tell you that this can be incredibly painful and destructive to relationships. We might win, right, when we get my way, but really everybody loses, right? It's, it's, just, it's just the way it is. So my way, that's the first one. I win, you lose. No way. Some of us are conflict avoiders, and we're like, I would rather gnaw off my left arm, right, than to experience conflict with somebody else. And so we try to avoid it. We do everything we can to avoid it. We stuff it. We pretend it doesn't exist. We do all this kind of stuff. The problem with the whole sort, sort of no way kind of thing is that our stomach and our body oftentimes keep score, right? Even if we can stuff it a little bit, it starts leaking out of us in all kinds of different ways. It can have health ramifications. It definitely has uh, relationship ramifications because our relationships will suffer if we don't work through conflict in a healthy way. Third one is your way. There are some of us that sort of approach uh, conflict in this way where we're kind of the doormat. We always give in because we hate conflict so much. We're like, I'll do whatever you want. Just make it stop, right, kind of thing. And, and, and so oftentimes there's people that uh, by nature perhaps um, will take – too much responsibility. They'll take responsibility for everything. They will try to change. They will try to accommodate. They'll do almost anything just to sort of avoid the conflict. And I'll tell you what, if that's you, I bet the person sitting next to you loves that about you. Right? I mean, because they end up winning, right? It's because they get my way all the time. But I have to say, in the long run, it never really works out that way, does it? Because, again, you don't end up working through the conflict in healthy ways. And oftentimes, I've seen this happen again and again and again. Uh, and I'll pick, I'll say women especially, that I think may, some women may be prone to this. But, but I think sometimes when this happens, they'll wake up one day and realize, I mean, I don't like a relationship. I don't like our family. I don't like how I'm functioning here. I don't like the role that I have because I've been accommodating and I've been giving you your way the whole time. And, and they wake up one day and all of a sudden now there's, a bigger problem, right? There's more conflict because we haven't dealt with it along the way. Does that make sense? Fourth one is this, halfway, 50-50, uh, sort of the, the compromise route. And of course, is compromise a good thing? It's a great thing. Is it, is it needed even in marriage and in healthy relationship? Absolutely. But if this is the primary sort of uh, guiding principle uh, in the primary way that you handle conflict, uh, it leaves something to be desired, and <laughs> I hesitate to say it, but I mean, can I just say, look at Congress, right? I mean, like, there's, there's limits to how much and how good and how well this will work over, over the long haul. And let me give you some examples. Like, if, if you're dealing with where you're going to eat lunch today after church, is, is compromise a good approach to that? Absolutely. If you're going to talk about, right, I mean, some of those kinds of things, the, the uh, you know, where are you going to, you know, what movie you're going to watch. If you're going to look at some of those kind of things, it can be a really helpful thing. But, but there are some things that are important, that matters of the heart, matters that are drastically uh, impacting your relationship. Let me give you an example. Let's say that there's a couple that's been married for some time, and uh, I don't know, one of them starts having an affair. 
okay? And it's devastating. The, the spouse sits down with the other one and says, oh my gosh, this is ripping my soul out. You're, I mean, you're, st- you're destroying our marriage, our home, our kids, I mean, all this kind of stuff. There's tremendous damage. And so uh, what if the, the guy or the girl or whatever uh, ends up saying, well, here's the deal. I want, I mean, I, I can see that this is a big deal to you, but let's compromise. I'll take the current amount of time I'm spending with this other person and I'll cut it in half. Does that seem like that would be a, a good approach to the situation? Would compromise in this, in this setting work? No, right? I mean, again, if you're picking a movie, if you're going to dinner, compromise is great. But there are some things in which compromise is just not enough. So we can go my way. We can say no way. You know, we can go your way. We can try halfway. Uh, or in, in this one, I'm, I'm uh, oversimplifying perhaps a little bit. But we'll, we'll call it God's way, right? The fifth one. That's what I want to talk about today. And that, that's going to involve, uh, certainly the Bible is pretty clear about conflict, that it's universal. We're told in lots of different places that when we have a problem with somebody, we should go to them, right? Not powered up, not angry, not like knives and guns, you know, sword and fist flying, not, not like that, but we're to go to them, we're to, to resolve it and we're to move on kind of thing. And so we're going to talk about what does that look like? What does it look like to actually have healthy conflict? What does it look like to have to survive conflict and even thrive in our marriage uh, in, in the midst of that kind of stuff? Okay? Like I did two weeks ago, excuse me, like I did two weeks ago, I want to start out uh, talking about God's way and I just want to step back to the beginning. I want to go back to Genesis and I want to, I want to just see the picture that God paints of marriage because I think this is sort of the foundational and maybe an overarching principle of what we're shooting for in marriage and really how, how to approach conflict in the midst of that. Okay, sound fair? Genesis 2, starting with verse 18, says this. Again, it's back to the, the creation narrative, the creation story. It says, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave uh, names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs, and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. That is why, God says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. I want us to just think about, and again, I talked about this in a different context, because Jesus quotes this uh, in a passage when we talked about two weeks ago, right? You can't un-one what God is one, right, kind of thing. But it's, I want us to just get the picture of this, uh, of this a little bit, let it kind of etch into our minds and into our souls, this picture of oneness, it's, it's God's design for marriage. His design for marriage, his design even for relationship, I would argue, has never been simply divorce avoidance or conflict avoidance. It's never been about keeping the peace or just enduring another person. It's not even coexisting. But God's dream for marriage, his dream for relationships is an incredible picture of unity, an incredible picture of oneness A picture of intimacy, not just satisfied with staying together, but a promise to pursue oneness all the days of your life. A promise to pursue one another, to work through the issues and come to the other side together in unity as one. 
a promise to celebrate the great joys together, a promise to be a companion for life, a promise to grow up together, to serve one another, to even confront uh, those things that get in the way sometimes, to believe in each other, encourage one another, and on and on. It's oneness. It's God's design for relationship, and especially his picture for marriage, a picture of one. There's a guy by the name of Aaron Beck, uh, who's a psychologist. He's done a tremendous amount of research on marriage. And uh, he talks about sort of two different ways in which marriages get damaged. And this is true for relationships in general. He says, typically, uh, damage gets done in one of two ways. He talks about either big exits, he says, or people can take little exits. Big exits, he says, are very dramatic, very visible, often permanent ways to leave a relationship, right? Divorce is probably the easiest one that comes to mind, right? Divorce, it's a huge exit. It's an example of a big exit. Other big exits might be, you know, leaving and never coming back. It might be joining the FBI witness protection program, right? And never being seen. But they're huge. They're visible. It's obvious. Big exits. And those are, those are things that when we can see and recognize, oh, yeah, those are relationship killers. But he talks about something else. He talks about little exits. And he says, you know what? These are things that are much more subtle and yet tremendously destructive to oneness, tremendously destructive to relationship nonetheless. Little exits, he says, are more subtle, quiet, underground, barely noticeable ways in which you and I move away from oneness. Things like holding a grudge, things like the silent treatment, nitpicking or grumbling, eye rolling or sighing, maybe even playing on your phone instead of actually listening to what the other person is saying. There are tons of them. When you take little exits, the result is that you find yourself moving away from oneness a little bit more, a little bit more distant from the other person, a little bit more separate, a little bit more disengaged, maybe even a little bit more hurt or hurtful. All day long, Beck says, in dozens of ways, by the words that we speak, by the tone of voice that we use, by our body language, by our activities, we are constantly either building oneness or we are eroding it in our relationships. It's going on all the time, one way or the other. Can I pause for just a second and say, I wonder which one you've been living out primarily lately. I wonder which one I've been living out primarily lately. Would you say that you have been characterized and your actions and your tone and your attention and your words and your listening and your serving, would you say that your life has been characterized by building oneness into your relationships, especially into your marriages? Have you been protecting and fighting for that? Or have you been taking little exits or maybe even big exits and you've been pulling apart instead? My hunch is that so, for so many of us, that these little exits are plaguing us, right? They are dogging us and they are taking their tolls on our relationships. But I want you to imagine for a second, what if there was a better way? What if rather than big dramatic exits in relationships, like I quit or I'm leaving, rather than getting moving towards divorce or moving away from, from them, and rather than little exits, eye rolling and sighing and ah, flipping through the phone and turning away from them and refusing to work through conflict, what if... Instead, you and I would learn to stay. What if we would learn to work through anger? What if we would learn to handle conflict in ways that didn't destroy trust, in ways that didn't erode oneness, that didn't involve a winner and a loser? Ephesians 4.26 says, In your anger, do not sin. 
and I read that and I think to myself, well, apparently, according to God, there is a way it's possible for us to be angry. There's, it's possible for us to, to have conflict, to have things and issues going on in our relationships, to be angry but not erode intimacy, to be angry but not erode oneness or trust. It's possible, possible to be angry but sin not. Well, now I want to transition into something, uh, some super practical words on relationships. It comes straight from the book of James, uh, James 1, 19 through 20. Three significant pieces of wisdom on how to survive conflict and just thrive in relationship in general. It's not written specifically about marriage, but it applies to it nonetheless. It's not rocket science. This isn't going to be jaw-dropping stuff that you're like, I've never thought of that before. But it's a reminder for us about how relationships work best. And so... Uh, we're just going to kind of walk through this a little bit. Three kind of pieces of wisdom, and it's, we'll make, keep it super practical as we go. It says this, James 1, starting with verse 19. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteous life, the righteousness that God desires. So three keys of surviving conflict, thriving in relationships. He says, listen carefully. He says, guard your words faithfully and handle anger rightly, which I think you probably should be correctly, but I liked rightly better. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it that way. And we're just going to kind of zoom in and kind of look at these. The first one, listen carefully, right? Be quick. Each of you should be quick to listen, he says. I read uh, a bunch of research, a bunch of studies this week. One uh, few things that were interesting According to one study, he says, we hear only about 20% of what's communicated to us, which means one sentence out of five we're actually listening to. Some of you are like, what? Did you say something? <laughs> right, right, but one set, maybe I should say it several more times, right? One sentence, 20% of the time is all it says that we're actually listening. Another survey that was done at the University of Alabama, they interviewed uh, wives and husbands and, and looked for what were the most common complaints in marriage. This is not a surprise at all. The number one complaints, especially about men, was what? What do you think? He's not listening to me, right? He doesn't listen to me anymore. The average working couple I read this week spends about four minutes a day in meaningful conversations. Four minutes a day. Friends, you and I cannot develop oneness in our marriages in four minutes a day. We can't, we can't foster intimacy. You can't microwave marriage that way and expect to have close connection and unity and oneness in your lives. I think this is a biggie for us. We've got to learn to listen. We've got to, we've got to elevate this value of relationship, of communication, and primarily to start with, we've got to stop what we're doing, turn towards our spouses, and, and, and learn to listen. Especially when tensions are high, right? Especially when there's conflict, especially when anger enters into the situation. We've got to learn to make, again, to stop, to make eye contact, turn off the electronics, and listen to not just the words, but to the hearts. We need to be quick to listen, God says. Proverbs 18, 12, there's a ton of these uh, that we could look at, but, but listen to a, a few of these. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions, right? Fools have no delight in listening and in hearing, right? They take, find no pleasure in understanding uh, someone else, but they are just all about sharing what they want to share. Can, can you think it back to a time when you've been in conflict with somebody else? Did you feel more like listening or setting the record straight, right? 
Okay. I'm not sure we're being honest. Do we feel, do we feel more like listening and just sitting there? Again, we're, we're having some heated conflict with somebody else. Do you feel more like listening or talking? Absolutely, right? We do this all the time. And God says, man, when we do so, you are being foolish. You're being a fool. We've got to learn to step back and listen. When we train church planners, we talk about uh, two things. We, we, we contrast. We talk about empathetic listening versus pathetic listening, right? <laughs> we talk, uh, and we say empathetic listening is about the other person, right? You're listening to try and hear what they're saying. We, you know, we do this in marriage counseling stuff sometimes. So you, you talk about reflective listening. You, you turn towards the other person. You forget about You try to push back just what, what you want to say in your story. And, you know, you don't, you don't just kind of wait to, okay, what you're saying is fine, but really, let's talk about my stuff. No, we said in empathetic listening, you kind of push that to the, you put that to the side and you listen and you focus on the other person. Maybe even you reflect back. This is what I hear you saying. When, when I do this, you, it makes you feel this way, and I can see how you feel that way, right? That, that would be frustrating, right? It's, it's all about them. Pathetic listening is all about me, right? It's all about me. I don't really care what you're saying. I'm just waiting because I've got this that needs to be said. This is the truth, or this is what I really think, or you may think it's my fault, but really it's your fault, right? We're just waiting for us to do that. And, and again, when we do so, God says, don't be a fool. You may be the winner, <laughs> by reacting that way, but really everybody's a loser, right? It it does tremendous damage in our relationships. Empathetic listening. You should be quick to listen, power down, turn towards each other, listen, reflect, empathize. I'm telling you what, I'm throwing us a bone here because if you and I would learn to be better listeners, it would, it would do, it's like miracle grow for our relationships, right? It would be so healthy for our marriages, so good for our relationships, our friendships, everything. When we, when we listen, we value the other person. When we listen, we'll keep conflict from escalating into something that will be big and ugly and destructive. If we can learn to listen carefully and empathetically, work through conflict, it'll serve you, it'll serve me, it'll serve us so well, we'll be able to not, not just to survive, but to thrive. Second thing, he says, okay, so I want you to listen right, carefully. I want you to guard your words faithfully. You need to be slow to speak, especially in conflict. You and I have got to learn to clamp our trap, right? To guard our words, so to speak, faithfully. In fact, if you go on and read in this James 1 passage, uh, just a couple of verses later, it says, it says, those who consider themselves religious, quote, quote, those of us that consider ourselves religious and yet don't keep a tight rein on our tongue, we deceive ourselves and our religion is worthless, the Bible says. Gulp. Can anybody say, right? Like that's, that's a, but it's, it's true. It's, I mean, we have got to learn to clamp down on our words and to keep a close check on our words. I read another study this week that uh, studied like a thousand different couples over a 10-year period of time. They, they, they categorized them into those, that's, those marriages that survived the 10 years and even thrived in their marriages and those that didn't. And then they kind of looked for differences between the two groups. What's, what's, what are the factors they were looking for? And in and, and this study, the, the, only, uh, the only observable difference that they could find were their words. Those that were in the category that didn't survive spoke twice as many, so like 100% more negative, cutting, degrading words to each other than those marriages 
that survived and even thrived. Our words are powerful. Listen to what the Bible has to say. There's some, some of the Proverbs about this. It says, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat of its fruit. Proverbs 12, 18 says, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing, right? It's crazy. A lot of times we, you know, we, even our culture, right? Sticks and stones can break your bones, but words will never hurt you, right? We've got all these things like words aren't really that big a deal. Even I think the Facebook culture is sort of like we should be able to say anything we want, right, on Facebook to other people because it's just words, right? It's fine. It's a, I think we underestimate hugely the power of words. There are some, I mean, I think he's, I think the, God's right on it. Is anybody surprised? Like shocking, right? But God's right on this. Words have the power of life and death. Some of us in the room can remember words that were spoken to us 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. Words that were spoken into our lives that wrecked us that we still carry around like baggage, right? Like it wounded us so deeply that we've never fully recovered from it. Words are powerful. And likewise, we can probably all also tell stories about somebody who spoke life to us at a critical time, that encouraged us, that saw something in us that we didn't even see in ourselves, and it brought us to life. God says words are powerful, so you've got to learn to guard your words faithfully, especially in conflict. I don't know if any of you are like me, but man, when, when I get in conflict with somebody, I, I get all kinds of brilliant ideas in my own mind about how I can win the, win the argument, about how I can whatever, and yet it destroys relationships. I'm in process in this, as are probably all of us, but we've got to learn to guard those things, right? There are some things that are, just do tremendous damage. Our words have the power to pierce like a sword or to bring life and healing to those around us. And I don't know about you, but in my marriage, in my friendships, in my relationships, more than anything else, I want my words to bring life, don't you? I want my kids to, to look back and remember times where I spoke into them and lifted them up. I want my wife to feel like I'm encouraging her and building her up. What are your words saying? What are your words doing these days? Are you building up or are you tearing down? Can I take a little bit of a tangent? This is, this is probably non-necessary application. It doesn't, it doesn't come straight from the text, but it's, it's definitely there. It's implying it. So let me just say this. I think in marriage, there ought to be, if there aren't words and things in your marriage and in your relationships that are off limits, then I don't think you're doing it right. Like, and here's what I mean. If words have the power of life and death to cut and destroy whatever, there are some things that are too painful, some things that are too wounding, wounded, wounding to be spoken. I can remember probably our first year of marriage, I can remember saying something to Tina that I could tell the second it left my mouth and impacted her, it was incredibly painful. It was, it was one of those, you're like, oh, let me have that back, right? If, if only I could grab that and get, but it was, it was, and I made up my mind at that moment, I'm like, I'm never saying that again. I will never cross that line again. There are certain things that are too painful and in the heat of anger, it's tempting just to let it fly, right? Just to kind of power up and go after it, but man, We've got to guard our words 
faithfully. There's some things that said in anger that just will cut and kill and destroy that we ought to just put on the list and say, I'm never saying that. I'm never going to threaten to divorce my wife. I'm never going to threaten to leave. I'm never going to say something like, I wish I never married you. I'm never going to say something like, I hate you or you're ugly or I'm not, uh, you're stupid. I mean, there are some things that you're just like, they've got to be off limits. And again, our culture doesn't say that. It's so weird. Our culture is like, man, you got to be able to just give full vent to whatever, right? And we might not say it, but that's how we act. That's how we function in this world. And I'm telling you what, friends, don't do it. There ought to be some things that are just out of bounds because words are powerful. Proverbs 15 says this. I, I think this is great. I think, in fact, this has been an issue for me. My words have been something I've always had to be aware of. And uh, I can be cutting. I can be harsh and whatever sometimes. And this is one that I've memorized. I've had it written over my desk at times just to, as a reminder. But it says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. And I just think, man, you can see this in relationships, can't you? Like when, when conflict begins... And let's say Tina says something to me, and she says, you know what, when you do this to me, it hurts me, or whatever. And, and there's a moment where there's like a little pause, and you can either back up and be like, boom, right? Like you can, I mean, you can blast them. And you can be, well, yeah, you, where do you get off doing that? Because of you, kind of thing. Or you can, I mean, some, and sometimes I'll literally just pause. I'll just clamp my lips for a second, and I'll just think. And I'll, I have to say, in moments where you're led by the Spirit, where you respond the way you want to, you can say, even process and be like, well, help me to understand that more. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if, if you don't, sometimes you can look at it and say, I think you're probably right. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, that's not my, my intention. If you can give a gentle answer, you can literally feel the power go out of the thing, can't you? It's like, Boom! Like, and you can like it's it's been amping up and amping up and amping up, and a gentle answer takes away wrath. It really does. A kind word, you know, even just a, a humbleness to your man, that makes all the difference in the world. In the world, but also a harsh word at that point, and it's over, right? <laughs> a harsh word, and boom. Let's be honest. I, I think there's probably many of us that if we are evaluating our marriages, evaluating our relationships, if we're honest, there's, there's probably moments where we can say, you know what, I have way overstepped my bounds with the words that I have spoken. I have done tremendous damage. And if that's you, then maybe today when you get home, maybe with your kids or with your spouse or with a friend or with whoever it is that comes to mind, maybe you need to go to them and say, you know what, my words have pierced like a sword. I have done damage to you, and I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? I'm telling you what, friends, there's some of us that need to do that today. That would be the best thing you could ever do for your relationships. And that takes us to the third one. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Handle anger rightly. Be slow to anger, uh, James says. Be slow to anger. Handle anger rightly. Dr. Gary Oliver writes this. He says, uh, the process of growing into an intimate relationship will involve conflict. Since many of us avoid conflict like the plague, we don't grow. We don't change. We don't get closer, and we don't experience intimacy. We stay stuck in the ruts of mediocrity. It's true, isn't it? 
The Bible says that iron sharpens iron, or, or it can anyway, that we, we can sharpen one another sort of like that. And I, I kind of like the imagery of that because the, if you think of iron sharpening iron, uh, and, and you kind of think about that like conflict, you, you imagine, yeah, are there sparks when that happens? <laughs> yeah. Is there sometimes some heat that gets generated in that? Yeah. Is there noise and friction? Absolutely. But that's sort of what conflict is like. It can either sharpen us or it can stab us. It can wound us. If we learn to handle anger rightly, if we learn to handle conflict rightly, if we keep destructive anger at bay, if we guard our tongues, if we work through the issues, if we build towards unity and oneness, we, we can make our marriages better. Even conflict can make our marriages better. It's possible to be angry and not have it lead to the destruction of a relationship. Ephesians 4.26, I read this earlier, but let me read all of it. In your anger, it says, do not sin and don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Conflict and anger are a normal part of any relationship. Conflict is normal. Anger and conflict can even be constructive. To be honest, there are some of us that need to sort of re-engage in our relationships. There's legitimate stuff that's going on that needs to be addressed. And because you've been so afraid of conflict, you're not addressing it. You're avoiding it. Like, for instance, right, if there's stuff going on, uh, f- let's say there's financial practices that you guys, are, that you guys have as a, as a couple, as a family, and you are driving yourselves into the ground. You're so far in debt, you're not sure you can ever get out. And it's causing all kinds of damage and stress. And you've been avoiding it. You know what? Some of us need to step up into the conflict, right? Because there's something healthy here, right? We need to, we need to address it, not blow things up and speak words that are destructive, but we need to address the issues, right? If there's stuff going on in our kids' lives and we don't necessarily agree on it, but our kids are so important, it's worth stepping into to try and figure out what's best for them, right? There are some times that we need to actually lean in to conflict because stuff matters, because our kids matter, because our relationships matter, because our lives matter, because our families matter, and that kind of stuff. Again, don't power up, don't blast somebody, but would you talk about it? There's a huge difference between anger or human anger, the way uh, James talks about it, and explosive anger, uh, which is what James talks about. There's a difference between constructive conflict and explosive anger. They're two different things. Anger in itself is simply the response to things not being right in your relational world or in your world as a whole. It's a a response to injustice sometimes. If I see a a two-year-old that's getting beat up by an alcoholic father or mother or something else, would I be angry? Heck yeah. Should I be angry? I think so, right? Sometimes that's God's tweaking our conscience and, 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 and by his spirit, he's calling us to go intervene, to do something, to protect an innocent kid that's getting beat up on or whatever, right? This is, there can be some things, anger in itself is about, it's how we respond to it. It's the same thing, right? Conflict in itself isn't a bad thing. It's how we respond to it that makes all the difference in the world. In relationships, there are times of conflict, but from this passage, right, from James and from Uh, The others, uh, I think God has a couple of things to say. The first one he says is be slow to become angry. I think it's a fascinating one. Be slow to become angry. I think there are times, in, in other words, and certainly there's a lot of times in marriage, lots of times in relationships where we just need to let stuff go, where we just need to forgive and let stuff go and move on. 
remember hearing a, a story about a couple that was married for 15 years, and the wife uh, in this relationship was getting really ticked off at some of the, the annoying stuff of her husband. And so she suggested, she said, here's what we're going to do. For the next month, I'm going to put out a complaint box. And every time that one or the other of us does something that's annoying, I want to, we're going to write it down. We're going to put it in the complaint box. At the end of the month, we're going to sit down. We're going to look at it together so that we can learn what is it that's annoying our spouse and uh, you know, kind of make course corrections as needed, right? So throughout the uh, month, this, uh, the woman was very diligent. She's like, you know, left, left the dirty, wet towel on the floor and I had to pick it up kind of thing. You know, left his socks and underwear on the floor and all, all these kind of things. She's writing them down uh, and, and uh, putting them in there. At the end of the month, they exchange boxes and he opens first and he's going through them and going, yeah, I mean, I can see. Yeah, I mean, this is annoying. This is bad. I can totally see that. I'll make some changes. I'm sorry. Uh, some of that kind of stuff. She opens up the box. And uh, there's one slip after another after another. They're all the same things written on every slip of paper. It says, I love you. And again, I'm not saying that, uh, that there's not conflict that needs to be addressed, but sometimes there's conflict. You've got to ask the question, like, is this an important value? Is this, is this something that's important in our lives that needs to be addressed? Or is this a preference? Is this just a little something annoying that all of us have, quirks? And, and if so, are you able to let it go? Are you able to just forgive and move on. Man, I'll tell you what. Uh, I think in marriage, uh, marriage, again, in a way that moves towards oneness, in a way that moves towards intimacy, that builds trust, and that's coming to life. I, I think in that kind of marriage, a godly marriage, I think forgiveness ought to be on tap, right? I think that ought to be something that gets served all the time. Forgiveness and grace and love poured out on each other again and again and again. That's where the good stuff is, that that will change, that will transform our marriages, that will transform our lives. The other thing that I thought was fascinating from the Ephesians 4 passage is uh, where it says this, it says, uh, in your anger don't sin, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, and don't give the devil a foothold. It's a piece of advice that uh, Tina and I got in pre-marriage counseling before we were uh, ever married. The pastor, a friend of ours that, that did this service, uh, challenged us on this. I, I challenge you to take that piece literally, that whole don't let the sun go down on your anger. He said, literally, don't ever go to sleep with unresolved conflict. Don't ever go to sleep with disunity in your marriage, but stay up and work through it. Do whatever you have to do to get to a place where at least to some degree there's unity. And I have to say, it's something that Tina and I have fought for, and we have, you know, there's probably been a handful of times when we haven't, but we've tried to live this out uh, this way. And, and what that does, that doesn't mean uh, that there's not conflict. That doesn't mean all kinds of things. But what it does mean is that there's some nights that we don't get a lot of sleep, right? <laughs> there's some nights where, I mean, we're, we're literally, we'll be in bed and we'll kind of we'll be like, you know, kind of doing the little, te- whatever that temper tantrum or whatever, pity party or whatever kind of thing. And occasionally like somebody will like flip over to the other side, like away from them just to kind of, in case you didn't know, just to remind you that, you know, I am mad here still, right? Like <laughs> things, this kind of, we'll kind of do this. And, but actually and we'll, we might do our little pity party thing for a while, but eventually we've both made a commitment to this, saying, you know, we're not going to go to bed that way. This happened once just a couple, like in the last couple of weeks where, where we were kind of, we hit something and we kind of did this and it was bedtime and we're both were like, <laughs> and, but, but, but at some point, again, we've made this commitment. At some point, one or the other of us will step up and say, you know what? I love you. I'm for you. I don't want to go to bed this way. 
And so and we'll, we'll look for whatever we can look for and own it, right? Like, and it might even be little, like, to start with. But again, it's a gentle word, turns away wrath kind of stuff, right? Like, I'm sorry for this. I might not even be able to say I'm sorry for the thing we were fighting about, but my response to you was hurtful and I was angry and it was explosive. Would you forgive me? And then, she, you know, then oftentimes she'll say something or, you know, we'll kind of go back and forth until, until we're, the tensions are lowered enough that we can actually deal with the main issue, be resolved, unity can be restored, and we go, I'll tell you what, I don't, it could be one of the best things you'll ever, that best commitments you'll ever make in your life, right, in terms of relationships that way. It's huge. Two phrases that will revolutionize your life, right, in, in terms of living this stuff out. I'm sorry, and I forgive you. Like I said, I think grace ought to be on tap. I think forgiveness ought to flow freely. If you want to have your relationships flourish, if you want to have your marriage flourish, get really good at saying both of those. I want you to, in fact, let's say, say I'm sorry. And then I'll just say, I forgive you. For some of us, we may have never said those words before, right? or, or not very recently, or not very often. Uh, again, as Christ followers, we are people that we have to, we have to admit, we are um, incredibly thankful that we have a God and a Savior who loves us not based on what we have done, but because he is a gracious and forgiving and sacrificial God, right? Are we, are we thankful for that? Man, and we have got to learn to let his grace and his example trickle down into our lives, into our relationships, and into our marriages. The way this most visibly gets expressed is by saying, I'm sorry, and I forgive you. Listen carefully. Guard your words. Oh, man, guard your words faithfully. And... Right, handle anger rightly. Let let grace and forgiveness flow. If you're able to let stuff go, let it go. If conflict needs to happen, go humbly. Go address the issue. Go work in a way that leads towards unity and oneness. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, right? Don't give the devil a foothold. But move back towards unity. When when you blow it, as all of us do, a hundred percent of us do, be quick to say. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And be, be quick to offer that grace and forgiveness. These are practices, we try to keep it real practical today, that will revolutionize, it's simple, but it'll revolutionize your lives. It'll bring our relational worlds to life. Let's close in prayer. God, that is, uh, that's our cry this morning. God, forgive us for so easily and so often just, I don't know, just being so full of pride, so full of anger, so destructive with our words, so careless with our relationships. God, would you forgive us and cleanse us? These are things we can't just power up and just force ourselves into, but would you come and change our hearts? Would you come and, and uh, pour your grace on us afresh in a way that it trickles down into all the relationships around us, especially in our marriages and in our homes with our kids, with our friends? Would you teach us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and, and super slow to become angry? Would you teach us not to, to let the sun go down on our anger or to give the devil a foothold, but to instead pursue oneness and unity and restoration and healing? God, would, would you teach us to have relationships with others the way you have pursued us, the way that you have loved us, the way you've 
poured out your grace on us. We need you, Jesus. So come and have your way. May your kingdom come. May your will be done in us, in our lives, in our relationships, in our marriages, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.